I just don't believe in it. They wanted me to impeach President Bush for the Iraq war. I didn't believe in it then. I don't believe in it now. It divides the country. Omar wears a hijab, which according to the Quran 33, colon 59, tells women to cover so they won't get molested. The rapist in this case has made a lifelong commitment to live and take care of the person. So it is a little different. I mean, let's just be honest about it. I'm not defending underage marriage at all. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So Yahoo News, my former employer, has Fox News Carney Tucker Carlson on its homepage. Essentially, that family values white knight was caught on audio defending child rape and sex slavery years ago. And he is defending himself with his usual mix of right-wing self-pity, shrillness, hysteria, and bad faith. Yahoo News really captured Tucker with this pithy headline, Host Remains Deviant after defending sex criminal. Good old Tucker. May he end up a debtor has-been like Milo Yiannopoulos, auctioning off deviant oil paintings of himself on Instagram. I think, by the way, we need to remember all the has-beens right now. The right-wing opportunist hysterics who stopped getting checks from the bad men or changed their ways or were shamed out of town. Alex Jones, Kanye West, Bill O'Reilly, Roseanne Barr, Omarosa, the neo-Nazis who killed Heather Heyer and marched on Charlottesville, everyone formerly of Trump's cabinet, Michael Cohen, Sebastian Gorka, Sean Spicer, Steve Bannon, deplatformed, prison-bound, relegated to obscurity, found new gigs, turned coat. I'm not saying they're not doing anything, but I'm saying these guys have been, well, to quote Tucker Carlson, castrated. Trumpism is not going to be a thousand-year Reich is what I mean. The guy's got 777 days as president so far. Here's hoping the Trump Reich falls short of a thousand days. My guest today to talk about horrible people doing horrible things is Nicole Hemmer. She's an expert on the history of American politics and media. She writes a weekly column on politics and history in U.S. News and World Reports. She's written for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, The L.A. Times. Her book, Messengers of the Right, charts the history of conservative media activism in the United States. Looking forward to having Nicole back on the show, and I will be back with her in just a minute. But first, the tweets. Republican senators have a very easy vote this week. It is about border security and the wall, stopping crime, drugs, etc. Not constitutionality and precedent. It is an 80% positive issue. The Dems are 100% united, as usual, on a 20% issue, open borders and crime. Get tough ours. Wacky nut job and Coulter still hasn't figured out that despite all odds, an entire Democratic Party of far left radicals against me, not to mention certain Republicans who sadly are unwilling to fight. I am winning on the border. Major sections of the wall are being built and renovated with much more to follow. Tens of thousands of illegals are being at Apprehended, captured at the border, and not allowed into our country. With another president, millions would be pouring in. I am stopping an invasion as the wall gets built. Hashtag MAGA. 
I hope the grandstanding governor of California is able to spend his very highly taxed citizens' money on asylum holds more efficiently than money has been spent on the so-called fast trade, which is billions over budget and a total disarray. Time to reduce taxes in California. Aluminum prices are down 12% since I instituted tariffs on aluminum dumping and the U.S. will be taking in billions plus jobs. Nice. Joining me on the line is Nicole Hemmer. She's the author of Messengers of the Right about conservative media activism in the United States. Nicole, thanks for being back on Trumpcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be back. So let's talk about your favorite subjects, Fox News, white supremacy, and racism writ large. We just had Sharon Squassoni on, and she thinks about nothing but nuclear winter. You two need to get together and share your sunny subjects with each other. That's right. It would be bleak, but it is definitely our time. That's right. And we have two very different humans to talk about on this front today. One is Tucker Carlson at Fox News. Some audio that he did on a kind of Howard Stern-ish, outrageous call-in show surfaced, you can hear him sort of defending child rape, slagging off Elena Kagan, the Supreme Court justice, as not beautiful enough for his taste. I think he uses the word cunt or cunty and otherwise humiliating himself in his usual way. Is Tucker Carlson's past misogyny and indiscretions a subject worth talking about toward addressing more systemic problems on Fox News or is it a distraction? Well, I actually do think that it's worth talking about because it gets at the heart of something we haven't explored enough, which is how other media outlets and media forms have shaped what we see on Fox News. It also, I think, draws a closer line, if we needed closer lines between Fox News and the Trump administration, between the person who I think is one of the Trumpiest people on Fox, Tucker Carlson, and Donald Trump himself. I mean, Donald Mm -hmm. Trump used to go on these shows, too, and say these kinds of comments We thought back in 2015, 2016, they would be disqualifying. They've certainly not proven to be so thus far. But Tucker Carlson is very much in these tapes speaking the way that Donald Trump would when Trump went on these shows. And I think that that's important for understanding not just the misogyny, which is often repackaged in more polite ways by other people, but in understanding the tone and the rhetoric and why that tone and rhetoric were so much more accepted by people than we would have thought because they're already part of the culture and they're part of a culture that's not necessarily defined as conservative, right? Imus and Stern and people Mm -hmm. like that are shock jocks, but they're not necessarily considered conservative. It's a style Mm -hmm. that's been picked up by both Trump and Carlson. Well, yeah, Mike Pence had a radio show and Rush Limbaugh is definitely in another key. The kind of libertine shows like Howard Stern, you probably wouldn't have said they were for the right. I mean, you probably thought of them as socially liberal, but also certainly love to spite the feminists and school marms or whatever. But Howard Stern was a bit of a guilty pleasure. And we know that Trump, especially when he didn't have a platform, and this is true for other conservatives, used radio. He called in and it was as though audio, and we think about this on Trumpcast and you got a podcast, audio is kind of secret because you can't retweet an audio clip very easily. 
And when now this news or the other liberal outlets want to put Tucker Carlson's audio up, they have to run video alongside it to get you to watch. People just don't play audio files. And so with AM radio and now with Sirius Radio and with some of these shows where they use words like cunty, you're sort of among friends. Like there's a feeling of locker room talk. And not to draw this out, because I know you know Fox News much better than I do, but I found it interesting that the host of the show that Tucker apparently habitually, almost compulsively called into the same way Trump called into Howard Stern, that he baits him into using this language. He keeps pushing him to use the language. And there's a little bit, and Howard Stern used to do this too with Trump, there's a little bit of almost exposing the person, showing their desperation, showing their darkest side, playing to their id. Howard Stern always with, would you bang her? Would you bang Diana? Would you bang your daughter, Donald Trump? And even pushing him on, were you for the Iraq war? It's an interesting S&M relationship, I think, between the hosts and some of these guys. It plays on their sort of insecure masculinity, right? Because these shock jocks tend to be sort of performatively over-masculine and then challenging people like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump to talk about sex, to use rough language, to talk about Mm -hmm. really obscene kinds of things is part of the challenge. It's part of what these kinds of shows do. And they end up making these records, which is to say like historical records that are actually really hard to research in. I mean, I think this is one of the fascinating things about when this audio comes up. It's not like they're just easily searchable transcripts laying around. People have to go back and they have to listen to the tape. And that takes a really long time, much longer than dealing with printed text. So hats off to Media Matters and other folks who are taking the time to actually dig through this material. I was really affected, and I don't know if you were, by Max Boot's renunciation of the Republican Party and of this whatever strain of white right-wing thinking he embraced for most of his career. And I don't know if you remember this article, but he sort of confessed to reading some foundational texts of modern conservatism, including Barry Goldwater and other kind of on-the-nose stuff, and discovered that racism was at the heart of the movement that he had embraced. All right. Lots of us have been saying that for a long time. But there is a way where when Tucker Carlson comes right out and says the things he said on that radio show, he reveals the id of the party. It's a little whitewashed on Fox News, but increasingly less whitewashed. But in this radio show, oh, when we're locker room between friends, we can say what we all think, which is, oh, come on, give this child rapist a break. He was just marrying off 16-year-old girls into essentially sex slavery, slash women don't want you to show any weakness, and wouldn't Hillary Clinton castrate us? Really kind of interesting on the couch stuff. Is Republicanism on the couch reveals itself to be this kind of bigoted, spiteful, castration-phobic cult. Yeah, I think that if you are intent on thinking of conservatism as an intellectual movement, which is something that not only a lot of people like Max Boot, who were adherents to conservatism, did, but what a lot of academics and historians have done in the past 10 or 20 years, if you look at it through that lens, then you have a tendency to bracket those kinds of things. You tend to bracket the misogyny. You tend to bracket the racism as kind of outlying instead of central. And I think one of the things that the past five to 10 years of American conservatism have 
forced us to do is say, no, wait a second, this isn't just an outlying part of the philosophy. The intellectual part of the philosophy isn't what holds this movement together, that it is in fact these things like overt racism, overt sexism, and also the kind of pleasure of saying the very worst things that become so central to the movement and has most likely been pretty central for a long time. I think someone said about Carlson's anxiety worry that Hillary Clinton would castrate everyone and was anti-penis. I think he says something like that. What did you think about the sort of frank, if inadvertent, confession of a kind of emasculation at the hands of feminists and liberal women? I mean, it was pretty raw. It was pretty raw, but the rawness is actually the only thing that's new there. I mean, hand-wringing about the feminization of the culture is something that we've heard a lot, especially since the 1990s. And so to talk about it in terms of castration is not something that's normally front and center because most people who are writing or speaking are packaging it in a much less visceral language. And so that, I think, is why this tape in particular, these tapes are so shocking and actually get people's attention is because it's not wrapped up in words like feminization, but it's like, she'll cut off my penis. Yes, exactly. Exactly. There's a little bit of that in the incel discourse, or a lot of that, where I think we've thought for a long time that certain ideologies, especially ideologies of resentment, concealed a kind of fear of one wouldn't be loved or a fear of something like emasculation. And then the incels just come right out and say it. Women won't have sex with me, so I hate them and I hate everything associated with them. (laughs) It's, It's amazing. It's like they're their own psychic wiretaps. Like, we don't have to try to parse like Max Boot did what they meant by XYZ. They tell us. Yeah, and it's so... I find the incel phenomenon so interesting, not just because they sort of put it all out there front and center, but that they're not as much of an outlier as I think they're often presented when we talk and write about them. There have been instances of mass murder by incels, and sometimes it doesn't even break into the news cycle, like the yoga studio murders in Florida, because violence against women, deadly violence against women for turning down men is like a foundational part of our culture. And it's something that people rarely even bat an eye at. So when you call it incel violence, that might get people's attention because it's a new label. And it is describing a specific political phenomenon in the past five years or so. But it's just not that different from the things that happen in our society on a daily basis. And so I don't think that we fully integrated that point into our discussion about this broader misogyny that's emerging in a much more raw way right now. The fact also of giving it a name as opposed to sexist or misogynistic, to call this that kind of violence and that kind of violent speech, like Tucker Carlson's inspired by castration fear, to call it incel seems maybe to sort of get us somewhere. You know, it's like being able to call something neo-Nazi violence because, as in your hometown of Charlottesville, sometimes people fly actual swastikas. Or if people commit violence toward women under the banner of Elliot Rogers, the sort of hero massacrist of the incel movement in California, if they do it that way, you can start to say this is actually a coherent ideology on a pretty close continuum with Tucker Carlson and Milo Yiannopoulos and, you know, other conservatives that barely conceal it. Right. And the... uh... There's both an opportunity and a challenge, right? 
So when yeah. you give things names like incel and alt-right, they give people a way of thinking, oh, here's something new in the culture that I need to understand, especially when it mm. makes itself really mm. visible. But at the same time, it's very easy to say these are the beliefs of extreme outliers. And once we cordon them off, once we have said, okay, well, we're not alt-right or uh, we're not yeah. incels, then the discussion about the broader problem of white supremacy or of uh, violent misogyny it kind of fades away because you've been able to bracket it to these extreme groups. Interesting. Yeah, I think Gloria Steinem pointed out recently that worldwide, the life expectancy of women may now be under the life expectancy of men because so many of them are killed by men in their families or husbands or boyfriends. So that's cheering. So moving on from Tucker Carlson, someone very different, Representative Ilhan Omar for us, maybe a slightly more difficult subject. Just a quick summary. She essentially accused some American Jews of covertly having a kind of traitorous loyalty to Israel that evoked for many, if not most of us, anti-Semitic discourse that says the Jews and Catholics in some cases are flying a different flag and are traitors to America. She also accused Jews or Jewish supporters of Israel Zionists as being greedy some people could say she was criticizing Israel, but not Jews, except she's been so coy and disingenuous in the past about her own anti-Semitic remarks. And then she went out with the Obama is a pretty face, but he's a warmonger. So anyway, the House, Nancy Pelosi, probably in some eagerness to move past this issue, created this resolution on Thursday that condemned bigotry. And then some House Republicans who had earlier condemned white nationalism, white supremacy after their own Steve King expressed his support for white supremacy. Anyway, 23 of those Republicans voted against the bill on the weird daft grounds. The president said the grounds something like the Democratic Party is an anti-Jewish party in the House. He called the bill disgraceful. What do you think about resolutions like this one or the Republicans' resolution to condemn Steve King? Are these sideshows, once again, or are they useful documents, useful moments? So I think that first we probably need to differentiate between King and Omar. I mean, Omar is a new representative mm -hmm. who has a very short history of saying these things. King has been doing this for 15 years, making pretty overt white supremacist claims. So the decision of the Republican Party to, after 15 years, finally say something directly about Steve King and his white supremacy seems to me to be somewhat different from what Democrats are going through right now, except to say that Democrats are attempting to nip this in the bud pretty quickly. Yeah. And they're doing it for a variety of reasons. I don't want to doubt the sincerity of any of it. But Omar has emerged as one of the right's favorite people to point to to say, look, we don't have a problem with white supremacy and hate. It's all on the Democratic side. And that makes it tricky for Democrats to navigate this particular issue because on the one hand, they want to neutralize that criticism. They don't want to be seen as the party of anti-Semitism because of the comments of one of their members. I think that they're also a little wary, though, because Omar is Muslim, she is a minority, and I think they worry somewhat about the ways that she is being targeted. And we can talk about Janine Pirro and other people. They also, I think, feel a need to protect her from the kinds of hate speech that she is receiving. So, you know, I, I find this to be a really fascinating 
problem that the Democratic Party has yeah. right now. But I also find it one that's really difficult to parse because some of it is being driven internally, but a lot of it is being driven externally by people who may not have the purest of motives. Yeah. I mean, she has said that she admires the Tea Party's grassroots kind of fireplug capacity to kind of capsize its party and own the issues. And I do admire in the fresh women in Congress their fire. And also her proposed policies on Israel seem quite sane. There have been some approving articles in the Jewish press about them. But I'm coming to realize that at least if I'm any kind of litmus, that it's the response to the mistake that tells me what the ideology of the person is. So Ralph Northam with his blackface discovered really could have said, I was such an idiot. I just wanted to impress everyone. And I was in college and I had no idea. I knew I was getting into something or whatever. And if the people of Virginia need me to resign, I hear that and I will do that. But no, it's not me in the picture. And suddenly he's off on that Brett Kavanaugh jam of I'm the real victim. And he convicts himself to me. And the same thing, obviously, with Brett Kavanaugh, with anyone who yells, I'm the victim, or Mark Meadows in the Cohen hearing, that he's the one in agony because he's been called a racist. It's not the racism to worry about. It's the white dude who's been called a racist who's the one in tears. And with Ilhan Omar, I really was ready to say it's a very hard needle to thread to talk about American Jews and Israel and make strong distinctions. My friend Batia Ungerson has done a wonderful job in the foreword explaining how to criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic. It certainly can be done. It's a second language for her. She was sorting it out. She said she was going to work it out with her Jewish colleagues. And then she did it again. And then when she was like, really in the midst of this, she said this stuff about Obama's a pretty face, but he's a warmonger. And then you just start thinking she's just trying to make trouble. I don't know. It started to seem like there was something more here. Yeah, I don't think that we know yet, but I think that you make a pretty compelling case for why Democrats should be wary. I think part of her problem, as far as I've been able to make sense of it, is that she's not particularly careful with her language. And I can't really decide whether she is not careful with her language or trying to be provocative. And I guess we'll see in the next three months, six months, a year during her first term, whether there's a change or not. Um, but I think that yeah. you're right that it is important to see how people respond when they're told you're doing something that's hurtful. And we'll have to see how her response continues to develop. I, I will agree with you. I think that her first response where she said, I have a lot to learn, seemed like a good one. But the learning seems to be taking a lot longer than one would hope. Yes. Let's talk about Janine Pirro, who said somewhat laughably, very laughably, that Ilhan Omar, by wearing hijab, by wearing a headscarf, was not patriotic and might even be in violation of the Constitution. The Constitution, of course, exists in large part to say that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And, you know, hijab is the constitutional whole enchilada. <laughs> like, that's what is this republic about, if not the free establishment of an exercise of religion? And then Jim Sirwicky was on Twitter saying Janine Pirro is a practicing Catholic. Doesn't she remember when Catholics were told that they answered to the Pope and not the president or not their American allegiances? I mean, what happened? Basically, my question is, what is happening here? 
Yeah, well, Janine Pirro, I think, is what's happening here. (laughs) Trying to be provocative, I think, and also somebody who has a pretty long history of saying kind of crazy things on her show. Her opening bits, which Donald Trump loves to tweet about, her opening bits tend to be extremely inflammatory like this was. And, you know, when I was watching her opening, it wasn't just the hijab, although the hijab is the starting off point for her, but she connects the hijab to Sharia law. And when she said that, it brought me back to something that isn't actually talked about as much on Fox News these days, because now they have to compete with all the anti-immigrant stuff and lots of other stuff that they're pursuing on the network these days. But Fox News and talk radio used to be a place where anti-Islamic rhetoric was rife, right? I mean, back in the days when we had the fears about the ground zero mosque, as it was called, or the fear of creeping Sharia, I mean, these were sort of staples of conservative media that have in some ways faded a little bit. But in this moment, Piero is tapping into that, I think. So she's talking to an audience that has heard about creeping Sharia for years and years and years. So by tying Omar to all of that, she's really tapping into a deep well of resentments and fears and racism that her audience should recognize. You're right to remind us of that. In some ways, this has become ahistorical. I mean, it must be frustrating for you as a student of bigotry in America to see everything slipping and sliding all over the place. I think that there was something in the Max Boot revelations that interested me in that he's been defending himself and his party against charges of racism for decades with possibly a creepy feeling that whatever maxim about race he'd been sort of mouthing over the years was just uh, like an effort to whistle in the dark. I think all this stuff emerging, anti-Islam left over, but now we've lost interest because Trump is claiming is bringing people home and does not seem to talk much about the risk of terrorism or he doesn't say radical Islamic terrorism much anymore. I just don't understand. I don't understand where anyone's allegiance is. And I can't even recognize, honestly, some of the language and moves that you see on Fox News now. Just don't get it. Yeah, I I think that that's that's fair. I think that if you don't immerse yourself in conservative media, you can actually pretty quickly lose track of the plot. And by that, I mean that it can be incredibly insular, right? We've talked about epistemic closure and this idea of creating kind of whole worlds that are cut off from a more shared conversation. And there are so many shorthands and hatreds and all kinds of things that a new language is crafted actually very quickly that audiences who are immersed in it can recognize. But if you're outside of it, suddenly it's like people are speaking another language. Right. You just start to feel uneasy as though something's being said that you're missing it or it's a dog whistle that you're not hearing, but it's just giving you an uncanny feeling that there's not even a rough agreement about what pluralism is or what America is. That's when things get kind of strange. I want to talk about Rashida Tlaib for a second. She's the representative who, in the Michael Cohen hearing, called out the use by Mark Meadows of a Trump staffer who he described as from Birmingham, which I guess was meant to certify her sensitivity to racism. But everyone understood that as an apparently African-American woman, she was being trotted out as a black woman, as a black staffer, to somehow show that Trump couldn't be a racist if she worked there. 
Rashida Tlaib described that action as racist and then clarified that when Elijah Cummings, who was running the hearing, asked her to clarify that she was condemning the sin and not the sinner, right, as racist. But that's when Mark Meadows took his umbrage and decided to call on Cummings to certify that he wasn't a racist because they're friends and Cummings is black. And that was another time where I was like in a total spiral of what is going on here. I'm going to say I thought Rashida Tlaib did beautifully there and also condemning the action, not the person. She seemed to do that very well, thread that needle. Yeah, she was really careful with her language. And I thought that was a particularly telling moment in a lot of ways, especially in this moment that we're in where anyone who says, I've been victimized or, you know, because I'm a woman, I've been sexually harassed or because I'm a person of color, I've been subject to acts of racism are called snowflakes and told to suck it up. And it's not that bad. And it's certainly not as bad as it used to be. So what are you complaining about? And then you have Mark Meadows, much like Brett Kavanaugh, just performing this breakdown of how dare you impugn my character by suggesting that something that I did was racist. And it is difficult to imagine a woman or a person of color in that situation being given the space to have that kind of emotional response and then to have everyone sort of gather around and be like, we need to deal with this right now because this person has been wounded in some way and we need to make sure that they feel okay before we go forward. That does not seem to be something that happens often in Congress and that it was done in order to sort of bring solace to a white man who someone suggested had done something that was racist, such as saying, well, Donald Trump has a black friend, so he can't be racist, is a little surprising. Yeah, I think that's right. And also that Michael Cohen had brought this up. I actually thought he had a wonderful response to Mark Meadows' set piece with the staffer, which was, yeah, that's right. She has a history of understanding racism from Birmingham, Alabama, or that we can infer she has. But I, too, went to work very closely for Donald Trump, and I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor. So the point is not I'm Black, I'm Jewish, and I would never work for a racist. The point is that's one of the ways that so many people who've worked for Donald Trump have sold out and sat for racist language. You know, it was almost like he showed a little sympathy for her and for Mark Meadows and for all the people caught in the kind of lying for Donald Trump and tolerance and even stoking of his bigotry and hatred. There was just this, I've said it before, a wonderful Puritan conversion narrative that he had undergone that was, I too was trapped in that and an exponent of him and you can get out. Yeah, no, I actually thought that Cohen did a pretty good job throughout his testimony of telling that kind of story, telling a conversion story, telling a story of I was in this situation where I made some choices that weren't very moral and weren't very good. And now I'm paying the price for it. And I want to tell you my story. And whether people believe him or not, I thought that he did about as well as a person could do in that situation. There's one other thing. We had Dahlia Lithwick on this show not long ago, and she was talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of the other young women in Congress, but also Adam Schiff and others, as fundamentally institutionalists. That in a weird way, and it's not exactly on point, but AOC's questioning of Michael Cohen, I thought was very shrewd also, just very beautifully done. The opposite, in Dahlia's view, of acting like an institutionalist would be like to touch on these cultural flashpoints and just really get into the fireworks instead of getting behind Pelosi, instead of not getting distracted by the fun of clapbacks and Twitter wars and just committing to the work of legislation and governing. 
I thought Elijah Cummings saying, we've had many hearings here. This is not the first hearing that we are doing this other work other than just getting into these fights and bashing back against the president. I thought that was great. Okay, the point about Rashida Tlaib is her saying that Mark Meadows' defense of Trump as not a racist itself partook of racist tropes or there was some racist stagecraft to it. That point went to the heart of the Cohen testimony. Mark Meadows weeping for his relationship with his nieces and nephews did not go to the subject. So in other words, I think Rep Tlaib was on point for what the day was about, which was this hearing with this guy. And Mark Meadows took the opportunity to kind of almost, you know, with this like weird male hysteria that we've seen for Brett Kavanaugh and others, dramatize his own suffering. Bizarre. Yeah. And I would say on the broader institutionalist point, I think we need to make a little more space in our brains for some both and thinking when it comes to this. Like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can both clap back and be an institutionalist when she's in a hearing in Congress. Mm. And the Democratic Party can both deal with the issues around Ilhan Omar and also run a bunch of hearings and continue to proceed on their agenda. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of discussion of distractions and performance and all of that when it comes to issues around racism and anti-Semitism and things like that. But first of all, I think those are actually central to the Democratic agenda. But there's also space for both of those things, as long as the work is getting done. And I think the work is getting done by Democrats in Congress right now, then there is room for both and. Yeah, I think that's right. One last thing, David Frum. I don't know if you saw it, but he has an article very much anti-immigration. He'd probably call it pro-immigration reform. And he's a conservative intellectual, a lifelong Republican in the Max Boot vein, who has not had his come-to-Jesus moment that the party's been corrupt forever. So he has a fairly recent immigrant to this country from Canada the intellectuals may be starting to creep back or at least try to say very fine people on both sides and are not, at least not as radically as Max Boot, all departing from the softer racist language, the old racist language that couched itself as concern about immigration or jobs. I don't know what you make of that. I don't know where you think that voice is going. So I've only seen write-ups of Frum's piece so far. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But from my understanding of his argument, it seems to be part of a process that the Republican Party and conservatives are going to be going through where they try to retrofit Trumpism with some Mm. sort of intellectual and policy structure that can survive beyond Trump. From what I understand, Frum is arguing in that piece that, look, Trumpism has shown us that these are the actual concerns of the American people, that the American people want less immigration. And so we need to both have policies that reflect that and also an intellectual framework for understanding that and for justifying immigration restriction as part of our platform. That's brilliant. Yeah. But polls show that that's not the case. Like, he is wrong about this, that the American people do actually support legal immigration. They support immigration reform that is actually more welcoming to immigrants coming into the country. And I think that there's just a false premise underlying that argument. But I think that that is the role that a piece like this is playing. Do you think that there will be a time, and, you know, I guess I have Cohen firmly in mind, when this is over, when there will be some kind of 
you maybe know what I'm going to say. And there are lots of friends of mine that hate it when I try to think remotely mercifully about this. Let's say Rupert Murdoch dies and people start to feel abashed about some of the things they said on Fox News and kind of have a hangover from Trump's overt racism and have an intellectual break about where the party's going and what they got themselves into and how they sat for this for so long and that we might be able to relocate the political center and also have a conversation that's not, it's just not a dialogue when one side is saying two plus two equals four and the other one is saying no, it equals five. Will we ever get back to something that feels like normal? So... The optimistic answer is somewhere in the long arc of history, I do think that we may eventually get back there in the shorter term, and maybe the shorter term includes our lifetimes. As long as the system as currently constructed continues to provide so much economic and political power to people, there is a reason why it will stay in place. As long as Fox News is a source of political and economic power, as long as Trumpism is a source of economic and political power, as long as rejecting reality is a source of economic and political power, people are going to continue to do it and they're going to stay invested in it. And what has to change is that equation in order Mm -hmm. for there to be a move back. So yes, I think in the coming years, you will see a handful of people who mea culpa out of a sense of moral awakening, but for the broader system to change, the incentives are going to have to change. My guest today has been Nicole Hemmer. She's the author of Messengers of the Right about right-wing activism in the media. Thank you so much for being here, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. That's it for today's show. Say hello to Trumpcast on Twitter and tell us what you think. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And don't forget to sign up for Slate Plus. Today's the day. It's $35 for the first year. That's pennies a day. Maybe even hay pennies a day. And it gets you all of Slate's podcasts ad-free, surprising perks, digital swag, and it supports our work in these mm, strange times. Go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus. That's slate.com slash trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by brilliant Melissa Kaplan with help from the peerless Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Nancy Pelosi says, I'm not worth impeaching. Let me tell you something, Nancy. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. Impeach me.